You know, if I if I was going to simplify on the question of crisis and, you know, an occasion like this, simplifications are really called for. Uh, one of the things I think Marx does is to, is to say what well, the contradictions of capital lead to is at certain moments in capital's history, you end up with a rationale for individual behavior, which produces the following collective result in which surplus capital and surplus labor exist side by side. And there seems to be absolutely no way to put them together to do useful things so that you have these surpluses of capital and labor and a very situation where society is crying out for all kinds of things that need to be done and capital can't do it uh, because the purpose of uh, a capitalist is to make a profit, not you know, not to help society in any way. So you get this this crisis formation, and and Marx then kind of says, well, you know, it's interesting about bourgeois economics. It's it, it's fine when everything's going fine, but in a crisis, he says, all all the bourgeois economists can do is to say this would not happen if only capitalism would perform the way I depict it in my textbook. It's a wonderful kind of thing to kind of say, you know. And, and, and the example of that I always, always go back to is when uh, Her Majesty the Queen, late departed Majesty the Queen, you know, uh, was actually together with the uh, economists of the British Academy and she asked them about the crisis of 2007, 2008 and said, how come you guys didn't see this coming? And there they are over tea in Buckingham Palace, you know, and the, the economists didn't know what to say. So they decided they would write a report and they, they went away and they wrote a report and they, and then they came back to her and, and, and sent it to her and said, you know, we were we were really working very hard at trying to get everything together, but we missed something and we collectively missed systemic risk. You kind of go, what? <laughs> now, if you're an engineer and you're in charge of making an aircraft and you didn't take care of a systemic risk, you wouldn't last in your job very long. And the fact that all, the whole economics profession and, and in, in effect, what that what that what they were saying was, we didn't understand there was something at the centre of all of this called contradictions of capital. <laughs> Conventional econo- economists hate, you know, hate contradictions. They, they they hate dialectics. They hate any of this stuff. I mean, it's really it's really amazing just to listen to them. And then, but then but then when it comes up to something like two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight, they had no idea it was coming. They had no no. You know, no idea what the what the problem was, and they don't know. To this day, they don't know. They have a they have a, a, a standard solution, which is a very negative solution in the long run. Which is, in the middle of a crisis, what you do is you create as much money as you possibly can, and you just chuck it into the into the banks or chuck it in somewhere. You rescue the banks and make sure the banks are okay, and you and then you let the people suffer. And suffer, you know, from all, all kinds of either from inflation or deflation or something or other. So we, what, what, what you have is a, is, is a world in which, um, you know, uh, the economists won't read Marx. They don't know how to read Marx because, you know, as soon as you get into Marx, you suddenly find, well, there are these things which are contradictions. And oh my God, we can't stand the contradictions. We want a rationality that exudes, you know, excludes all contradictions. And <laughs> so, so we get this, 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 this terrifying situation where the planners who actually take this stuff from the economists seriously and work with it, and they end up making the, the situation much, much worse. 
you know, I, I, I would like to tell a story that, that you stimulated me, David, listening to you. Um, actually two little stories. One is about risk. When I would, went to university, they explained to me that the reason why a, an entrepreneur, a capitalist gets a reward is because he has taken a risk. And I say he consciously because when I was going to school, it yeah. was not conceivable by my professors that the capitalist might be a she. Uh, there has been some progress, not a lot, but some along that line. But there was none when I was going to school. So the capitalist gets a reward, profit, because he has risked his capital. He's made an investment, may not work out, so he's risking it. And I remember my first thought as a young man in, in, in school. Wait a minute, I said, just in all naivete. What about the worker who moved from another community here to take a job, who undertook a mortgage for a house on the premise of a job, whose wife and he or husband and she decided to build a family and have children on the premise of a job? They all took enormous risks, arguably much greater than what that capitalist, a small part of his portfolio and threw it at a project so they don't get paid for risk they only get paid for the labor they do and if the investor works for the company he will get a wage or a salary so the risk is not a profit isn't a reward to risk it's an excuse because if you really wanted to reward risk you would have to have a risk reward for all of the people who took risks to come together and make this work. And when I asked my professors, they looked at me with that hangdog look of, could you please ask me a different question? This is uncomfortable. And it's because they had never thought about it, not not for one minute. Here's a second story. Uh, technology. Uh, a, a machine comes across, available, invented somewhere, that makes workers twice as productive. Let's say they're making hats. So now... Uh, each worker, instead of being able to make 10 hats a week, is able to make 20 hats a week. That, that, that's what it means. What does the capitalist do? We all know what the capitalist does. He fires half his workers, thereby buys the machine, now produces exactly the same number of hats before, half the workers, but each one is twice as productive, sells them, same price. Let's make it a very simple example. He takes the money, but now his profit goes up because half of his workers don't have to get a wage. He fired them. So he keeps, as his extra profit, what he doesn't pay to the workers that he fired. This is what we all see and explains, for example, why workers have a long history of being very skeptical about technical change or progress. But the truth of it is there was, of course, an option. And the option is excluded unless you do Marxism. Here's the option, in case it hadn't occurred to you. I don't want to embarrass anyone. All the workers could be told, congratulations, we have a new machine. You now work four hours a day, not eight. In other words, we solve the problem by giving the workers the same wages they got before. For half a day's work, same output, same number of hats, same revenue, same profit for the employer, I haven't lost anything. But the benefit of the technology has been in creating 
leisure in giving the workers a transformation of their lives. Half time, same salary, a worker's dream. The workers are many. Their dream is denied. The capitalists are few. Their profitability is guaranteed. That's how we use technology. But that's not because it's in the technology. That's in the capitalist system that rigidly prevents one kind of usage and insists on the other and then allows that to be replicated over the centuries. That's something Marx had fun with teaching us about. By the way, on, on the question of risk, uh, I think uh, it's important to remember that uh, most capitalists don't actually work with their own money. They borrow. That's right. And they borrow because that allows them to make a lot of profit by leveraging, which is uh, using that distinction between the market rate of the interest and what they actually get back. So they can... So, so when Elon Musk, uh, who is a very good example of exactly what you're talking about right now, when Elon Musk uh, puts up $40 billion to buy, buy Twitter, he didn't use his own money. He went to the banks and he borrowed all the money because uh, then they are actually the ones who end up having to take the, the final risk. And, and as we know from, you know, the 1970s onwards, uh, we had this thing called moral hazard in which speculative investments by the banks were always guaranteed by the state so that the banks could go out there and do all this kind of, so so they 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 could they could take on as much risk as they wanted they could do all sorts of stupid investments and speculative investments and if they went bust as they did in 2007 2008 then money daddy state comes along and kind of picks them up and says okay we'll 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 help it meanwhile the population is left is left uh, sort of with with no houses and things like that in 2007 2008 so again one of the things there is that who bears the risk now one of the consequences of leverage is of course the debt economy has grown enormously over the years and the IMF put out a report a couple of years ago in which they they totaled up all the debts in the world, you know, private debts, uh, public debts, uh, corporate debts. And it came to the fact that everybody in the world, per capita in the world, the level of debt, debt indebtedness is now something like $86,000. Now, that has grown from almost nothing in, in, in 1970 to $86,000 per person, per head of the whole global economy right now. And, 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 and this is an insane world, you know, when I, when I write about the madness of economic reason, this is, this is mad, but you can see that leveraging is very, very attractive. So that you always want to do things on other people's money and you borrow other people's money. And that's, of course, the, where a lot of systemic risk comes in through this, what they call gently in, in, in terms moral hazard. And, and, and this moral hazard is a peculiar term, but it's, but moral hazard is simply that banks can speculate on anything they like, big capital, and the bigger you are, the more easily you can borrow. So, so I couldn't borrow the sort of $40 billion, uh, to, 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 to buy Twitter or anything like that, or, or, or borrow $20 billion as George Soros did when he better bent the pound and, and, and did all those kinds of speculative things. So that, the, the, what we what we find is a capital which is which is which is leveraged r- right now, and 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 the indebtedness in the world and the levels of indebtedness are are, are becoming a real serious problem, and 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 a debt is a, a claim on future labour, 
And when we start to look at the whole population, the student debt and things like that, that's a, in a sense their future labor has been 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 or already um, sort of accounted for um, through through the indebtedness. So that the, the cultivation of indebtedness, which has gone on over the last thirty or forty years, is something which again is 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 something very specific. With no surprise whatsoever that most of the crises that have occurred over the last, you know, 30, 40 years have increasingly been financially based. They're based in this, this, this crazy leveraging stuff. But again, that's the only way in which you can handle the, the, the surplus. And the surplus now is, is, is such that it, it's, it's, it's huge. And how do you dispose of that surplus? And, 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 and the huge amount that's been wasted in Ukraine is, is minuscule actually. In, with respect to the total surplus which is available throughout capitalist society. And we're in that situation where there's massive amounts of, 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 uh, of unused capital power, which is not being used for good social purposes at all. And, and the reason for that is it is not profitable that the, 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 the center of what a capitalist system is about is profitability, not social, social well-being. And, you know, I think you and I thoroughly agree that yes. the big task of socialism is about, you know, turning this whole economic system around, rejigging it and reconstructing it in a way that it meets social wants and social needs with a great deal of freedom. I mean, your point about workers going, you know, four days a week, Marx has a nice idea and he kind of says one of the measures of a good socialist society is one in which people have a lot of free time. They can do exactly what they want. And if you ask people right now, do you have a lot of free time? Everybody will tell you, no, I have no free time at all. <laughs> Actually, capital eats up free time, even when it has nothing, you know, nothing to do. So what we're living in is a society where, you know, I would love to have kind of, kind of just free time, free time, free time. And, you know, the day will come when we will take care of basic needs by working for one day a week and the rest of the time we do as we damn well please. You know, I mean, this is, you know, just what, what a, a good socialist society might begin to look like.